Well, hello, everyone. This is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio tucked away somewhere beneath the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Wednesday, October the 4th, 2023. And uh, I am so excited about our guest uh, today, a man who needs no introduction, really, although I will introduce him. Uh, first time on the Not Bad Works uh, podcast, uh, but no stranger, I'm sure, to our audience that is uh, really tuned in to Bible prophecy. Bill Salas is with us today. He's going to be talking about the upcoming conference in Norman, Oklahoma, with Prophecy Watchers, where he and I and a host of other uh, speakers will be uh, together, and also talking about his uh, new book, The Future War Prophecies. And so, really have grown to love this man. He's uh, just a, loves the Lord, and he's just been very gracious to me and my family. So, can't wait to bring him on here in uh, just a few moments. But uh, before we dive in, just a quick devotional, as we always like to do. Today, of course, is uh, October the 4th, and so I was in Proverbs 4 uh, this uh, this morning, and a couple of verses jumped off the page at me, uh, verses 20 to 23, actually, where the Bible says, "'My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to all their flesh.'" Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And I was just reminded when I read that about the importance of staying in the Word of God. You know, God's Word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 tells us. It is living and active. Uh, one of my uh, professors years ago, 30, 32 years ago, now hard to believe it's been that long, was Howard Hendricks. And he was always fond of saying, when you read any book, on the planet, you're doing something to it. But when you read the Bible, the Word of God, it's doing something to you. And especially in these great last days of deception, it is so crucial uh, that believers stay in the Word of God. You know, you go over to Ephesians chapter 6 uh, in the famous uh, Armor of God passage, spiritual warfare. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the only offensive weapon that's listed there, down in verse 17, of course, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so as we navigate these unsettling times and try to make sense of all that's going on, not only do we need to stay in the Word of God to help understand God's plan of the ages and the prophecies that are unfolding, but also because it is ultimately a spiritual battle. And uh, we need to use the Word of God just as Jesus did in His temptation in the wilderness uh, to come against the enemy and to be prepared for whatever comes our way. So my challenge to you, uh, folks, is just to stay in the Word of God. So I hope that encourages you the way it encouraged me uh, this morning. Uh, I want to mention a couple of uh, announcements here. As I said, uh, Bill Salas and I and a host of others will be uh, speaking at the Prophecy Watchers Conference, the Imminent Return Prophecy Summit. My goodness, I feel so privileged to even be mentioned in some of the names like Bill Salas, Billy Crone, Tom Hughes, Brandon Holdhouse, Mark Hitchcock, Bill Koenig, uh, L.A. Marzulli, of course, uh, Nathan Jones, Don Perkins, on and on and on. That runs Thursday through Sunday. I know many of you are probably planning to be there. You can also purchase the live stream ticket, so you can watch all of the sessions either live or uh, later on as they've been recorded. Uh, for the live stream cost. So I encourage you to check that out at notbyworks.org. Click on the banner there that will take you straight to the conference website. You can learn more about it. Uh, and I, I, if you are in the area or planning to come, be sure and stop by the Not By Works table and say hello to Wendy and my daughter Brooke and Zoe will be there. And then two of my other kids, Landry and Abby will be there. Landry, my son, and Abby, uh, my one of my daughters, uh, so, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing you. Stop by, say hello. That's this weekend. And then the following weekend, I'll be in uh, Flint, Texas at Flint Baptist Church, a large Baptist church there, speaking three times on Sunday, October the 15th. You can learn more about that at our website as well, notbyworks.org. At both conferences, I'm going to be speaking on issues uh, from my newest book, Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. And uh, you can learn more about that at spiritofthefalseprophet.org, spiritofthefalseprophet.org. 
And then uh, I'm so blessed to have Brooke be a part of our ministry. She is just my right hand. She and Wendy, between the two of them, we are just in heaven here at Not By Works. They both do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And recently, Brooke has made some major upgrades to our website, our online store. We've started offering all kinds of free resources at the free section of our online store. I posted an article, I think I mentioned this yesterday on the show, uh, from Second Test 2 on the meaning of apostasia. Uh, that's available there for free, as well as a number of other articles. I've won on the new heavens and the new earth from Isaiah. So check that out while you're there. You can also sign up for our premier membership. Uh, we uh, just launched that o- over a week ago. We've already got over 30 folks that have signed up. The nice thing about that is it just gives you some extra content and extra uh, kind of privileges uh, to be a part of a smaller group here at Not By Works Ministries. We're not taking anything away. All of our podcasts and videos will still be available to the general public as always. But we created the premier membership uh, just to give those of you that want a little something more uh, that opportunity. So we're going to be hosting periodic Zoom meetings by invitation only just for the premier membership. The first one of those will be while we're on the road uh, next Tuesday, October the 10th. And uh, we're going to give you a report on how things went at the conference with Prophecy Watchers and just take your questions and just really look forward to that evening together. So, again, that's for premier members only. You can join uh, for a small monthly fee, or I think there's an annual membership as well that saves you a little bit of money. But check that out while you're on the store. And for those of you that are already Premier members, be sure to mark your calendars. You should have already gotten an email for Tuesday, October the 10th. And don't worry if you're not able to join us live, because I know we've got people all over the world. Someone emailed me and said, well, that's going to be three o'clock in the morning here in the UK. I said, that's okay. We're we're recording it and we will post it for the Premier members at the Premier membership page so you can watch it at your uh, leisure. And uh, so, yeah, just wanted to mention those quick announcements. Um, Don't forget, uh, tomorrow we will have our World Events Update with Randy. Now, that's normally on Wednesdays, uh, and that's probably our most watched, our most listened to podcast of all. We love Randy. Uh, We do it every week on Wednesday. But this week, because of the special uh, uh, emergency alert system test that uh, is going on uh, today, Wednesday, Uh, We wanted to push that off to Thursday so that we can kind of reflect on it and talk about kind of what happened, if anything, and so much chatter out there about that that event that we just wanted to kind of let it pass. And so World Events Update will will happen uh, tomorrow on Thursday this week. So with that, I am so excited to uh, welcome uh, for the first time to the program again, no stranger to most of you, I am sure, uh, Bill Salas. Bill, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, JB. Thanks. It's great to be with you. You bet. Yeah, it's, it's truly an honor. Uh, you can learn more about Bill if you've not heard him before at prophecydepot.com. And uh, I got to tell a little story here before I uh, fire away at you with some questions here. But I first came across Bill when I was in academia. Most of you know I spent 12 years in uh, full-time academics, uh, six, or five and a half at the baccalaureate level, and then six teaching at the master's level. And I taught eschatology and all kinds of systematic theology, hermeneutics, uh, some other classes. But that was about the time when your book on Psalm 83 was coming out. That was about the time when uh, there was a lot of buzz out there about uh, the blood moons, and Jonathan Kahn was out there writing about... Uh, the Shemitah, maybe that might have been a little bit before then, I'm not sure. But anyway, I can remember having these discussions about those biblical texts in the classroom. And But I got to tell you, I have grown so much in my own walk with the Lord ever since leaving academia back in 2012, leaving it full time anyway, I still do some adjuncting. And it's just been so neat to, to get to meet by God's providence, some of the authors of those books that at the time they were just a name on a book. And I was interacting with your views on those things. But what an honor it was to meet you in person for the first time last March uh, at the Prophecy Watchers Conference in Orlando. And then again, we were together in Fort Collins recently and uh, just really, uh, you know, love studying your work. You know, one of the great things about eschatology and the study of the end times is that, you know, we may not always connect the dots precisely the same way. But it is a deep well that we can draw from again and again and continue to study the word until we meet the Lord in the air. And I've been challenged really on a lot of my views in the last five to 10 years by uh, folks such as yourself. So thank you for that. 
but uh, Bill, tell us what you're going to be speaking on at the uh, conference. Uh, absolutely, JB. And you mentioned my new book, The Future of War Prophecy. So that I'll be speaking pretty much the two sessions from that book. The first session, I'll be talking about the future pre-tribulation wars, the wars that I believe involve the Israeli defense forces. There's a p- plethora of those existing in fulfillment of biblical prophecy that have not yet found fulfillment, that may find fulfillment even during the church age. They're pre-tribulation because I can point out, and I'll be pointing out in my sessions, that the Israeli Defense Forces will not be in war in the tribulation because in the first half of the tribulation, they're living in the pseudo-peace you know, from the false covenant of Daniel 9.27. In the second half of the tribulation, they'll be fleeing for their lives as Jesus instructed when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet at the mid part of the tribulation then flee immediately. So they won't be fighting in the tribulation. They won't be fighting in the millennium as well, but they will be fighting before the tribulation. So I'm going to be going through the various wars that we'll be involved with uh, against Syria. Isaiah 17, 9 talks about there'll be a desolation in strong cities in Syria, dealing with Damascus, caused by the children of Israel. So I'll be getting into that. Hezbollah, I think we can find them in Psalm 83. Palestinians, I'm going to show how the Israeli Defense Forces pretty much take them to task, the Hamas. Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will be an interesting topic because they're, right now they're in the news with Israel trying to normalize relationships. President Biden trying to normalize relationships with Saudi Arabia and Israel. But then after that session, I'm going to get into uh, the future tribulation war prophecies. In other words, what's going to happen with the, the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, the seal wars, etc. You know, with the uh, fiery red horseman, the second horseman of the apocalypse, the war in heaven, Revelation chapter 12. So we'll be getting into the wars between now and the end of the tribulation period in two different sessions. Well, that uh, man, I, I'm definitely going to to make it to those sessions. I sat in one of your two sessions in Orlando, and unless I'm actually speaking at the same time, I, Wendy and I'll definitely be there. Um, I wish we had time to really have you uh, kind of go through both your presentations, but I don't know if Bill, if uh, Bob Ulrich would like that because he likes to premiere them at the at the conference, the Prophecy Watchers Conference. But let's talk a couple of a couple of things that you mentioned there in that rundown. First of all, you and I talked at at uh, dinner when we were in Fort Collins recently about the covenant in Daniel nine twenty seven. Talk to me about your view on why you think that is not necessarily a military treaty per se. Well, I, there's two proof texts with the covenant, the false covenant that starts the tribulation period. First one's Daniel 9.27. We're told some important things about that, that uh, he will confirm a covenant. The Antichrist is a confirmer of the covenant. It'll be for seven years. Uh, it will seemingly enable the sacrifices and offer, offerings, but in the mid part of the tribulation, he brings a cessation to those. So we find out that a couple of very interesting things about that. He confirms it. It's a seven-year period. It gets violated in the mid-part of the tribulation. It gets annulled. But we don't get all the details. Why? Is, who's the other party? It says it's covenant with the many. Well, who's the many? Uh, why is Israel coming to the covenant table anyways? Why are they even concerned about this? I, I believe Israel at that time is going to be pretty robust. I think they'll have taken out their Arab enemies. I think they probably have had Ezekiel 38 could have happened by that time. Why are they even coming to the bargaining table? What's the big concern? So we go to Isaiah 28, verses 15, which tells us, they make a covenant with death. They're in an agreement with Sheol that when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will pass by them. But they make the they make this covenant in lies and falsehood. In other words, it's politically expedient for them to make this covenant. So we find out who the many are. It happens to be death and an agreement with Sheol. So death and Sheol, who are they? We got to put a face on them. What's the overflowing scourge that apparently death and Sheol are, per, are perpetrating? And can, what is Israel concerned about that? So actually, I get into that in. Several of my books, uh, I personally, I, I don't want to know who I think they all are, but basically who I think it, I think the overflowing scourge is, let's put it this way. The Antichrist comes on the scene, and I believe in the white horseman, the first horseman of the apocalypse. At that point, he could confirm the covenant. That's when most of the colleagues would say, hey, that's when the covenant begins. That's when the tribulation begins. Because once the covenant gets confirmed, the seven-year treaty, the seven-year tribulation begins at that point. So yes, he is on the scene. He can confirm it at that point. Israel is on the scene. They are one of the signatories, but who's the many? And who is death and Sheol? Are they on the scene at that time? And are they perpetrating the overflowing scourge at that time? So we, we go down and travel down the, the road of, to the fourth horseman, and they're called death and Hades. Now, Hades is a Greek word for Sheol in the Hebrew. 
So I come up, I've come up for various reasons, not just me, but Tom Hughes and a few others, with an alternative possibility to the timing of the sealed judgments. And we put perhaps the first five sealed judgments could actually be in the gap period between the rapture and the tribulation period. And I give supporting reasons for that. I actually have a thesis online available for free called the Post-Rapture Pre-Tribulation Thesis. Post-Rapture Pre-Tribulation Thesis. This is the whole gap, my whole theory, and that sort of thing. The point being... Death and Hades have control over a quarter of the earth to kill. Some people say they're killing a quarter of the earth. That's not technically what it says. It says Death and Hades have authority or power over a quarter to kill through multiple means, swords, famines, beasts of the earth, etc. They could be killing a quarter of the earth, but they have authority over a quarter to kill, and that probably be at least a quarter of the earth. They could be killing that many. The point is, I think Israel is concerned about that. Who are they killing? They don't want to be their next victim, if I'm, if I'm correct on my assessment, of that being the overflowing scourge that Death and Hades is perpetrating. But we're going to find out who their next victims are in the fifth seal. Fifth seal saints, are, they're, they're killing Christians, apparently, among the, whoever else they're killing, whoever's dissenting against their whatever their false gospel is going to be. And the fifth seal saints ask a very interesting question. They say, well, how long, O oh Lord, is this going to continue until you vindicate us, right? And God, God says, doesn't say, well, that's a stupid question because you should know that how much longer because you saw... The covenant was confirmed with the white horseman, right? For the first seal, the you're in the tribulation. You should be able to calendar the days of how much longer. No, he didn't say that. He says you must rest a little longer until your fellow servants and the brethren of the fellow servants will be killed like you will. Three different periods of Christian martyrdom in the tribulation period. So from my perspective, I don't think it's a treaty with the Arabs and the Jews. A lot of people are thinking right now with respects to the Saudi Arabian normalization potential that this could be the the start of this covenant between the Arabs and the Jews. But I'm going to be pointing out my sessions. Peace does not come between a politically brokered deal between Israel and their enemies. Israel's enemies win. Israel wins over their enemies through the wars that I'll be talking about at the session, That like Psalm 83 and the other prophecies. The Israeli Defense Forces bring about the security they're looking for. They don't need a, a plan for peace deal. So I don't think it has anything to do with the Arab, peace, Arab and Israel peace deal. I think it's got a lot to do with Israel wanting to build its, its temple, and I get into that in that thesis I talked about. So just to to you know, repeat back a few of the things for some of our folks, so a couple of notable things to me are that the covenant, in your uh, estimation, is really a covenant guaranteeing Israel's right to resume the temple and and worship, you know the temple sacrifices and those types of things. It's not so much a military treaty because by then Israel's already gained a victory over uh, their enemies, and particularly the Gog and Magog War, Ezekiel 38, as you mentioned, that clearly happens, at least in, in my view. I know there's disagreement among scholars. That's why I love talking about this stuff, because, you know, as long as everybody sticks to the word, we can we can have some great back and forth and really iron sharpens iron. Uh, and, uh, and I know, for example, Andy Woods takes a different view on this. But in my view, it, that definitely happens, as you said, post-rapture, but pre- tribulation. And so what's fascinating to me is your uh, your conclusion that uh, the, the, the some of the seal judgments also happen prior to the official commencement of Daniel's uh, 70th week. Another thing that's always been interesting to me is um, the Psalm 83 war, which I've read a lot of your stuff on that going back years. Um, how would you respond? Because honestly, I'm not exactly sure where I come down, but I'm having a time of my life studying this stuff and really you know, thinking through it, what does the text say, and how does this fit into Bible prophecy? I could study that all day, every day. But what would you, what do you say to some who think who suggest that Psalm eighty three is not prophetic? It's a lament psalm, or it's a partially imprecatory psalm, that kind of thing. Why are why are you confident that this does fit into the end times picture? Well, first of all, it is the prayer of lament in addition to a prophecy. I have an appendix in my new book called. Uh, why Psalm 82 is a uh, prayer and a future prophecy. Asaph, who wrote the psalm 3,000 years ago, he was clearly a prophet. We're told in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30, he was a seer. Shozah is the Hebrew word for prophet like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Also, other prophets, other verses tell us that he was a prophet. You also have a legitimate confederacy with the devious plan that wants to come together to wipe Israel off the map. It's not a chronological ordering of Israel's enemies when we look at the belligerents, 10 members. Some of them listed in habitation conditions like the tents of Eden, probably representing, I believe, the Palestinian refugees. The inhabitants of Tyre, perhaps representing Hezbollah, a state within a state in, in, in Lebanon. 
But also you have, it says that verse 8, it says the Assyria helps the children of Lot. In other words, you actually have one of the members assisting the other children of Lot would be Jordan, Ammon, and Moab. Uh, also, the there are some people who think they already found fulfillment in 1948 because those very countries actually came to war with Israel in 1948, the ones listed when you put them on a modern-day map. But it didn't fulfill the whole prophecy because there's 18 verses. The first eight verses would talk about the motive, the confederacy, who they are, the goal to destroy Israel. But the rest of the verses talk about what Asaph petitions the Lord how to deal with them, which is basically, you know, go to war, empower the Israeli defense forces like you did with Gideon and the Midianites. He uses that example. Like when at the time of the Canaanites persecuted the Israelis, Deborah the prophetess, they empowered her general Barak. They took out the Canaanites. Gideon took out the Midianites. Those Midianites, the Canaanites never oppressed the Jews again, etc. So, and then also there's all these peripheral prophecies where the Israeli defense forces are going to war against those countries. Um, and I'll be going through a whole bunch of those at this conference. So the Israeli defense forces... An example, in Zechariah 12, verse 2, it talks about Jerusalem will someday become a cup of trembling to the peoples round about, not the world at large, but the Arab countries round about to the left hand and the right hand. Zechariah 12, 6 goes on to say, in that day, when the Jerusalem becomes a cup of trembling, uh, the governors of Judah, that would be the Israeli defense forces, the chieftains, uh, will be like a, the battlefield will be like a fiery torch, like a fire pan in the woodpot, it says, the Israeli defense forces will be like a fiery torch, and the surrounding peoples round about will be like sheaves, and the Israeli defense forces will devour them and and uh, on the left hand and the right hand, totally devour them. So we see the Israeli defense forces in prophecies. That's just one of them. And I could rifle off like yeah. five right off the top of my head, but that just shows you that, you know, that those prophecies are not related to the tribulation. They're not related to Ezekiel 38. None of the Psalm 83 countries are, are in Ezekiel 38. So the Israeli Defense Forces, they, they are involved in the prophecies related indirectly or in, internally to Psalm 83, in my estimation. Yeah, I tell you, you know, it's really challenged me to think through it, and I, I'm still working my way, way through it. But our mutual friend, uh, Dave Reagan, you you give a couple of quotes from him in the book. By the way, we're talking to Bill Salas. Most of you uh, know him. Uh, if, you, if not, you can find out more at prophecydepot.com. And we're talking about his new book, The Future War Prophecies, which... Talk about passages in Scripture that seem to be relating to uh, wars that will set the stage for the coming uh, seven-year tribulation. Uh, but uh, back to Dave Reagan, uh, this is some pretty high praise from him. Uh, he he calls you a true eschatologist, and here's what I like. He says, you bring an inquisitive attitude to God's prophetic word. And some of my uh, you know, most uh, greatest mentors and greatest friends in the Bible, uh, folks like Paul Van Noy up in uh, uh, Coeur d'Alene, are people who, who, like yourself, come to the Word of God with a blank slate. They're not parroting what other dispensational scholars have said. They're, they, they are biblicists first, theolo theologians second. And that is so critical. Uh, and 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 in my throughout my ministry life, there have been times when I've departed on key views with the traditional dispensational view, for example, on the new covenant and things like that. And in each case, it's simply because I believe that's where the the text drives me. So, whether you agree or disagree with some of Bill's conclusions, there's no question that he is saturating himself, as you've heard already, with the Word of God and and drawing some pretty pretty uh, profound uh, conclusions, I think, that merit attention. Um, so one of the things you mentioned in the book, and you just alluded to it earlier, was the two Christian-killing crusades of the tribulation period, and that relates to that fifth, fourth and fifth seals, I think, that you mentioned, uh, and so forth. Uh, but uh, will, will the Antichrist, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who's the subject of my latest book, will they set their sights on Jews or Christians or both during these the lead up to Christ's return? Well, they're going to set their sights on both. Uh, the Antichrist ultimately will try to commit genocide of the Jews. That's why Jesus warns them in Matthew 24, 15, flee immediately when the Antichrist goes into the temple and abominates it. We find on Zechariah 13, 8, that two-thirds of the Jews are killed and cut off in the land. A third of the faithful remnant will fortunately come through that, and Jesus will return for them. Uh, Christians are being beheaded, we're told in Revelation 20, for not taking the mark of the beast. See, he's 
he's not going to be religiously tolerant. It's going to be, he wants to be God, worship as God, set him, show himself in the temple as God. And so the first thing he's going to do when he comes, when he gets resurrected from the dead, we told him in Revelation 13, he gets a mortal head wound. And I might have the chronology of events a little bit out of sequence, but in this span of time frame around the mid-trib point, he's, you're going to see that he comes, gets resurrected from the dead. He hooks up with the 10 kings who hate the harlot. In Revelation 17, 16, they actually desolate the harlot, confiscate her wealth, give it to the Antichrist. He puts it in his coffers. And then you have the Christians, of course, he's going to behead those who don't take the mark of the beast. And the Jews, he's going to start trying to do a killing campaign against the Jewish people. So he's going to be taking getting rid of Judaism, who's going to be one part of the false covenant, the signatory, the Jews, part one, the signatory of the false covenant. I think the Harlow religion, in my personal estimation, represents death in Hades. And I can tell you how I get there, time permitting. He's going to take yeah. that, her out. He's going to take her out. So the two signatories of the false covenant are gone. Covenant gets annulled at the mid part of the trip. And then he's not going to tolerate Christianity at all because that would be a competing religion. It's just going to be his way or the highway. Get rid of the Jews, Judaism, get rid of the harlot. And I believe that would be Roman Catholicism, my personal perspective. On, on other religions under that umbrella, but spearheaded by, I believe, the Vatican in Rome. And then um, the Christianity, he's going after them. But three different killing crusades. I put the the first one is the fifth seal saints. We're told they said, how much longer, O Lord, until you vindicate us? They're asking that question because I think they're dying in the gap at the hands of the harlot who's killing, killing them. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus, we're told in Revelation 17.6. And they don't know how much longer. And they're saying, how much longer is this going to happen? And, and the Lord says to them, you got to rest a little bit longer because they're your fellow servants and the, fifth, the brethren of the fellow servants must be killed also, martyred. So we have three different killing post-rapture, uh, uh, three periods of post-rapture Christian martyrdom. The first one, I believe, is the fiscal saints killed by the harlot, probably in the gap. The second one is also by the harlot in the first half of the tribulation, the fellow servants of the fiscal saints. But after she's taken out by the ten kings at the mid part of the tribulation, I believe the brethren of the fellow servants of the fiscal saints would be the Antichrist beheading the Christian. Now, I'm not sure that's correct. No one else has ever said it that way, but I don't see how else it could be sized up other than that potential way of those three different periods of martyrdom. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense for sure. And, you know, those the Revelation 17 and those 10 kings, uh, that's always kind of hard to see how that fits in uh, as well. But there's there's a lot going on during that final seven-year period, and obviously it's all it's Satan's last stand, right? He It's the culmination of this cosmic struggle between good and evil, and uh, he does not believe what he's read in the Word. He doesn't recognize or acknowledge that he's a loser and that he's already lost the battle. He's He really believes uh, he can win. Someone asked me the other day, I had lunch with someone who was coming through town, and they had uh, reached out to say, if could they get together for lunch? And so I happily agreed. And they were saying that, you know, they think Satan, uh, you know, it, you know, they were asking, why does Satan continue to th this battle when it's so clear that he's a loser? And, and I said, well, it's, he's self-deceived. It's, it's not that you know, he recognized, because this person was saying, well, maybe he recognizes he's defeated, but he just wants to take as many people down with him on the way down. I don't see it that way, Bill. I think this uh, Satan really believes he can win. He's self-deceived, which is the worst kind of deception. And he simply does not believe what he he and, and we read in, in God's word. Um, so a couple other things I want to get your comments on. Uh, fascinating stuff. So we talked about Psalm 83. Uh, there's been a lot of attention given recently to the Damascus War. Tell, talk to us about how you think the stage may be being set uh, for that that battle. Well, you know, we, we need to remember that Israel is still at war with Syria. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't sign a peace treaty like they did with Egypt in 1979 or with Jordan in 1994. They're still bombing Syria on a regular basis, and not only Syria in general, but key places in Syria, namely around Damascus, but also around Aleppo. Mm -hmm. And I believe you're going to find Aleppo and the Homs and Hama area uh, in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 23, which talks about Hamath and Arpad. Those are ancient, strong cities who would today be Aleppo and uh, Homs and Hama. But also Damascus is a burden in Jeremiah 20, uh, 49, verses 23 through 27. But the, the key verse, the key chapter is Isaiah 17. 
says Isaiah 71 says that someday Damascus will cease from being a city. It will be a ruinous heap. Uh, then you go on into Revelation, uh, Isaiah 17, verse 9. It says, there's desolation in strong cities, including Damascus, caused by the children of Israel. See, a lot of people say, well, the Assyrian Empire fulfilled the destruction of Damascus in 732 B.C. And I point out, uh, you know, Isaiah talks in his 66 chapters about Assyria 37 times or Assyria and or Assyrian 41 times. He never mentions them once, Isaiah 17. But he does tell us in verse 17, verse 9, that it's caused by the children of Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces. And then we find out in Isaiah 17, verse 14, that says, one night you see him, I think that's Damascus in the masculine pronoun, but in the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who rob us and those who plunder us, meaning Israel takes them out overnight because they're in self-defense. You know, they're being robbed and plundered, etc. And I believe that's going to be involved in a larger war, a proxy-related war, because we find out in Isaiah 17, verse, if I can find the verse here real quick. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 17, verse 12 and 13 say, Listen, the armies of many nations roar like the roaring of the sea. Hear the thunder of the mighty forces as they rush forward like thundering waves. But though they thunder like the breakers on a beach, God will silence them and they will run away. They will flee like the chaff scattered by the wind, like a tumbleweed whirling before a storm. See, a lot of people don't comment on the fact that why is Israel taking out strong cities, not just Damascus, but other strong cities? Jeremiah tells us that's also Hamath and Arpad, which I believe would be Aleppo. And they've, they've been bombing Aleppo, too, by the way. The Aleppo airport, they've hit it a couple of times. Um, but they don't mention the fact, why are they taking out the whole, taking out all of Syria, pretty much, mm -hmm. the desolation of strong cities and Damascus. But there's also all these other armies of nations. And I believe that, I personally, I think I have a chapter in the book called The Proxy War That Shakes Israel. I believe that's Iran and its proxies are coming after Israel from the north with Hezbollah. It's got 150,000 missiles pointed at Israel. Has, uh, Syria has chemical weapons. Hamas has missiles pointed at Israel. They can, one headline came out. You'll get, you'll, this will blow you away when you hear this headline here. I'll find it real quick. Predicted scenario. This just came out, JB. Uh, this is in the Israel National News back in August 7th of this year. Predicted scenario, 6,000 rockets at Israel during first days of war with Hezbollah. Israel's defense establishment is preparing for the worst-case scenario during a war on the northern border, which would include days-long blackouts, hundreds dead, and thousands wounded. And the article goes on to say, within the first few days, about 6,000 rockets would be launched at the Jewish state. Hmm. And that's just from Hezbollah, just from Hezbollah. Wow. As time, as time progresses, the number would decline to about only 1,500 to 2,000 rockets a day. That's phase two. After a few days into it, phase two. Um, security experts estimate that every day there will be approximately 1,500 effective strikes in Israeli territory, and that is after subtracting rockets that statistically land in open areas and are intercepted by the Iron Dome. So they're suspecting 6,000 rockets the first couple of days. I remember in 2006, the summer of 2006, there were 4,000 rockets lobbed from Hezbollah into Lebanon over 34 days. We're talking 6,000 rockets for the first couple, two, three days from Hezbollah alone, and ultimately tapering down to 1,500 effective ones, meaning that Israel can't stop. They're not landing in the fields. They're not being picked up by the Iron Dome. They're hitting targets, and with precision-guided missiles, banks of targets, and they're causing devastation. And I think that's what we find in Revelation 17, 4, 4 through 6. I'll go there real quick since we're I got a moment here. goes on to say... It says, in, in that day, speaking of in the day that Damascus gets destroyed, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fatness of his flesh will become lean. That's Israel. That's the bad imagery. It'll be like the reaping gather, uh, like the reaper gathering standing grain, verse 5. Gleanings of, like the gleanings is the shaking of an olive tree with two or three olives in the topmost bough or four or five of the branches on the fruitful tree. And what I do is I show... Uh, an, an olive tree superimposed over a map of Israel. And I point out that on a fruit, fruit variety of an olive tree, you can have a half a million olives. And it's a very common tree inside of Israel. But all of a sudden, there's a severe shaking when Jacob's glory fades, his flesh becomes lean because of these, I think, believe, these attacks that are coming at him. And uh, what's left is a shaking, serious shaking. And there's only two, two or three olives in the topmost bough up around the Haifa area and four or five in the branches in the fruitful tree maybe down by the Tel Aviv area, if I'm correct in my analogy. So it looks like Israel takes a really big hit during this war, this proxy war. And I think when that happens, JB, 
uh, they take out a city, the, the oldest continuously inhabited city in recorded history. And when they take out that city, and that's Damascus, out, right? Yeah. Damascus mm-hmm. freaks out. What about Beirut? What about Amman, Jordan? What about Mecca? What about Cairo, Egypt? I think the Arabs at that point start to flip out. Like we could be next, and also Israel's hurt. We can come together now, we can take them out. Well, they do take, Israel does take out Amman, Jordan. We're told in Jeremiah 49, verse 2, that there's an alarm of war heard in Rabah of the Ammonites. That's the capital, Amman, of Amman, Jordan, Jeremiah 49, verse 2. And it shall be a desolate mound, and Israel shall take possession of its inheritance. And that has not found fulfillment yet either. So I think what happens is you have this series of events that go on. Isaiah 17 gets out of a prison will fight with Israel, missiles coming in from all different directions. Uh, they take out a city. That creates an uproar in the Arab world. And then they come against Israel because they think they can. They think they can get them this time. And then they go, Amman Jordan gets taken out next. And uh, I show other prophecies about how the Palestinians go down. Esau has no more descendants. Obadiah 118. House of Jacob will be a fire. House of Joseph a flame. That's Israeli defense forces. House of Esau, be that as the Palestinian descendants, shall, shall be uh, stubble. There shall be no survivor left in the house of Esau. Obadiah 118. So uh, the Israeli defense forces are all over this place in biblical prophecies in the end times. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. And we're talking to Bill Salas, um, the future war prophecies. And and I'm I'm just l- l- hanging on every word as you're talking here, and I'm thumbing through the book. And it's it's so well structured and well put together, just systematically dealing with the biblical text and explaining how everything is going to culminate uh one day. Now, in your in your scheme, uh it's certainly possible that, uh, and I'm asking this for the benefit of our listeners, that these wars could happen after the rapture pre-tribulation, right? It's not necessarily that they would happen, you know, we, we may be already raptured before they some of them happen, right? Yeah, I believe the wars involving the Israeli defense forces are pre-tribulational. I also believe the rapture is pre-tribulation. Uh, whether we're here or not for the, some of the Israeli defense force battles or not, we don't know because... There's the, the, Jesus could come get us at any given time, right? But if He does not, and the way things are going right now, we could actually see a couple of these wars during the Church Age. Yeah, and so that leads me to my my next question, um, and that is, you know, I, I, like you mentioned Aleppo. I mean, back during the Arab Spring and and all that was going on back in those days. I think that was about two thousand six ish in that general time frame. I mean, it had to be exciting to kind of see how this could be the beginnings of some of these uh, you know, prophecies being fulfilled. But what do you see geopolitically happening right now that makes you go, wow, yeah, this is a powder keg, and th- these all could start to fall into place uh, you know, right away? Because if people were writing in, the say, the 19th century or the early 20th century, totally different era, but Jesus tells us to watch for the signs of the times. And it's one of the reasons that I've become so focused in in recent years with our ministry on Bible prophecy. To me, you'd have to be living in a cave not to see that these things are just unfolding every day. Like the headline you just read a a moment ago, uh, uh, I think you said it was from the Israeli Times. I mean, so what do you see happening that makes you say, wow, that we're getting close? Well, I think the elephant in the room, and it's a prophecy we didn't even talk about, is Iran and its nuclear program. Mm. Iran is a subject of dual end times prophecies. One that your listeners are probably most familiar with is Ezekiel 38, verse 5, where, Elam is listed, where Iran is listed as Persia by Ezekiel. Right. Around 596 BC, about two decades before Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel 38, his contemporary Jeremiah wrote about Elam. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 39. Now, Elam, when you look at a modern-day map of Iran, it hugs the Persian Gulf. It's about a third of Iran. On, it hugs the Persian Gulf. It's where their, all their mis- underground missile silos are, their portable rocket launchers, their underground air base. they got a Bashar nuclear reactor there as well. It's a very dangerous area. Israel has to go through that area and defuse that area even get into the other bigger nuclear sites like in Parchin and Natanz and stuff like that if they were to attack, which I believe they're prepared to do. They in May of 2022 they did the chariots of fire drill, the largest one of their largest military exercises of all time, specifically planning on attacking Iran's nuclear programs and preparing for a multi-front war in retaliation and preparing for casualties on the ground 
inside of Israel. So they're ready. And Iran, late, latest report says they're two weeks away from having fissile materials to have a nuclear weapon. Mm. They have a uh, hypersonic missile now that can hit Israel in 400 seconds and can carry a nuclear warhead at 6.66 minutes. So that's what's really going on. And Iran, of course, has their proxies involved. Uh, that is just surrounded. Also, we've, there's a couple of reports came out recently. You might find interesting that in uh, NPR back in uh, 2019 reminded us that 300 chemical attacks during the Syrian civil war came by Assad's government. But then just recently in the Jerusalem Post, it says Iran is working to take over Syria's chemical weapons industry. I-24 says Israeli report warns Iran is helping Syria develop chemical weapons. Here's a uh, Arab news came out, Arab world August 5th. Israeli report warns, Syri warns of Syrian chemical weapons available to Hezbollah. So, you know, the stakes right now for Israel are higher than they've ever been. Iran wants to wipe them off the map. They've got nuclear, working on a nuclear weapon. Hezbollah's got missiles pointed at them, lots of them. Um, they can send 6,000 a day. I think that's what's going to happen. And there's a prophecy that talks about in Jeremiah 49. It says that at some point in time, the Lord is going to get fiercely angry with Elam, that one side of Iran by the Persian Gulf. And we find out the reason he's angry is because they got bad leadership. It says that he's going to destroy from there the kings and the princes. And why what are they why are they bad leadership? Because they want to launch something lethal somewhere from that area. We find that out because we're told that he's going to break the bow at the foremost of their might. So in other words, he's going to stop them and missile launching capabilities. He says, I'm going to be so angry, I'm going to create a disaster in that territory. Sounds nuclear because it says when the disaster happens, the indigenous population has to flee. It's the humanitarian crisis. It says there's no nation where the outcasts of Elam will not go. Uh, it says Elam will have enemies. They'll be pursued by the sword. So I'm going to be talking about that prophecy first at the conference, showing how it could relate into a proxy war. Then Israel can take a, it takes a hit. And Isaiah 17, 4 through 6, the, the, his glory fades, his flesh waxes lean. And then I'm going to get into how the Arab world will probably go in an uproar. That could lead to Psalm 83. After Psalm 83 happens, Israel can then dwell securely without walls, bars, or gates, which is a prerequisite condition for Ezekiel 38 to happen. Ezekiel 38, verses 7 through 13 says, Israel has to be dwelling securely in the midst of the land brought back from the nations in the latter days without walls, bars, and gates, a peaceful people, and receive a great plunder and booty because that's what Russia's command for. And that Israel, in my estimation, does not exist just yet. Matter of fact, that's I wrote an article when I first came out with my book called Psalm 83 or Ezekiel 38, which is the next Middle East news headline. And that's what got David Reagan's attention. He put that article in his Nonflutter magazine. But we're told in Ezekiel 28, verses 24 through 26, you say, well, when is Israel going to dwell securely? And two times it's mentioned in Ezekiel 38, they'll dwell safely, securely, without walls, bars, nor gates. Well, it says in Ezekiel 28, 24, it tells us when, 10 chapters earlier. This will no longer be a prickling briar or painful thorn for the house of Israel from all among those around him, them who despise them, and they shall know the Lord. Because thus says the Lord God, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, and they will dwell in their own land which I gave to my servant Jacob, and they will dwell safely, securely. That's the same words, Yeshua, Bukhtav, Ezekiel 38. They will dwell safely. They will mm -hmm. build houses. They will plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely, Yeshua, But when? When I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them, they shall know in the Lord their God. So I'm, I'm saying that those judgments are about to happen through the, the mechanism of the Israeli Defense Forces. They will take those countries out around them that despise them. And then Israel can dwell securely and plant the vineyards and the things that we find Israel in that condition. Remember, none of the countries in Psalm 83, they share common borders with Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Hamas, Palestinians. Uh, none of them are in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 is an outer ring of countries, you know, Russia, Iran, Turkey, a lot of North African countries. Et so we've got two different groups of people here. And why wouldn't, if Iran's involved in Ezekiel 38, why would they not bring Hezbollah with them? Why would they not bring Syria with them if they go into Ezekiel 30? I believe it's because they're already taken out beforehand. As yeah, as... That, and that's why you characterize it as Iran and its proxies. And so um, 
you know, you're you you are an expert in prophecy, but you may you not necessarily a prophet. But if you could put your prophet's hat on for a moment, uh, does Israel strike first, and that's what starts this sequence of events that lead to the Damascus War, the Psalm eighty three War, the, the Gog and Magog War, or does Iran strike first? Well, I don't know, but I would tell you this: Israel has a precedent of striking first. Mm -hmm. They did it with the OSIRAC, uh, Iraq's nuclear reactor in 1981, if it was. They did that in 2012, I think, at Al-Qabar with Syria. They will strike first. They will preemptively strike nuclear facilities. They've already got a history of doing that. And so I would basically say that if I was Iran, I'd be very concerned that Israel's going to strike at any given time. There's always certain things that have to happen. Are they going to get those refueling jets in, in 2024? Are they going to wait for that? Uh, is Iran going to wait for what something on it? it the point is, you can always push it out as far as you want, but the bottom line is, it's going to happen, and it's probably going to happen pretty quick, and I think Israel's going to strike Iran. Now, we're not told in Jeremiah 49, verses 34 through 39, who strikes. We're told Iran has enemies, and it looks like it's pursued by the sword, so it looks like a military strike, not an earthquake, because that comes into play, too. Iran is a very seismic country, very earthquake-prone. But the point is, like the other prophecies we're told in Isaiah 17:9, it's the children of Israel creating desolation. We're told in Jeremiah 49, verse 2, the children of Israel make Amon Jordan a desolate mound. Obadiah 1, 18, the children of Israel get rid of the Palestinians. But we're not told in Jeremiah 49, 34 through 39 who it is. But I'm presuming that it's going to be Israel. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty solid case. Um so where can folks get the book as we as we were about out of time here? So I want to mention that again. Uh, where can they get the book? Uh, my website is Prophecy Depot, like Home Depot, prophecydepot.com. That's the best place. It's also on Amazon. Yeah, but uh, Jeff Bezos has enough money. So let's get it from prophecydepot.com. Uh, and uh, I just want to read from, from the back uh, here uh, just to kind of as a teaser uh, because, you know, you've done such a great job. And folks, if you've never heard Bill before or read his stuff, you can tell just from this short interview, he knows the Word of God, and he's really doing his best to stay true to the Word and connect the dots. Um, it's some pretty, you know, heavy stuff as you really compare Scripture with Scripture and drill down into the weeds, but he's he's got a pretty compelling uh, argument to make here. So, in the last days, mankind will dwell in a war-torn world. Conventional battles, nuclear exchanges, and supernatural demonic invasions are coming. The Future War Prophecies book and DVD locates the battlefields, identifies the participants, explains the motives, provides the details, and explores the outcomes of these coming world-changing conflicts, which include, as we've talked about briefly, uh, the Israel versus, Israel versus Iran and its proxies, the destruction of Damascus, Isaiah 17, final Arab-Israeli war, Psalm 83, Russia's coalition invasion of Israel, Ezekiel 38, talked about the two Christian killing crusades in the tribulation period. We'll have to say for next time, I'd love to pick your brain on some of the demonic aspect of this. That's where my uh, research has been focused the last uh, really 17 years is the Luciferian conspiracy, Satan conspiring with uh, evil celestial beings, as well as human co-conspirators to usher in uh, the one world system politically, religiously, and economically. And by the way, I do agree with you that Rome is going to be the center of the religious aspect, uh, the, the harlot uh, system there. Um, but we'll next time, uh, we'll have to talk more about uh, the demonic invasion, the uh, 200 million demonic army. So I take it that you you see the 200 million man army as demonic? I do believe so, yeah, yeah for multiple reasons. You know, yeah. some, people, some people try to say it was the Chinese army, which is right now about two or three million, I think, at this point, not 200 million. Right. Uh, because Mao Zedong, once upon a time, that he thought he could support a 200 million man army, but the, for multiple reasons. But the logistics of trying to put 200 million man army together, it's never been done for, and it's almost impossible to do. But also, the, they use, the way they described in the sixth trumpet judgment, uh, they, they don't look at all like people. They got thing like scorpions, they got uh, red high, high sense, blues. I mean, I, I can't, I have to have it open in front of me to tell you what it says. But right, right. Fukunmom yeah. says he's never seen a Chinaman that looks like this. <laughs> yeah, Artie. Artie. One, one Chinaman that looks like that, let alone 200 million. And yeah. he's demonic, as do I. 
Yeah, I th- I mean, I think it's it certainly makes the most sense. Um, you know, what's fascinating about studying uh, scripture and prophecy in particular is that we're all a product of the culture in which we live. So in the mid-20th century, uh, especially after Israel became a nation and people started trying to, you know, connect the dots uh, after World War II, you know, there was a lot of people who you know, uh, tried to take that as a literal human army and, again, point to China. Uh, who knows? I mean, most of the numbers in Israel, I mean, in the Revelation are literal, but in this case, you've got the added description, which uh, certainly seems, uh, you know, quite telling. Uh, and then you've got the logistical aspect of it. Uh, who knows? I would probably lean more towards the demonic aspect, but, you know, you just, you, you don't, you never want to put you know, make anything impossible. And, and by then, who knows? I would say this, if it happened today, if, if the end times clock starts ticking and the rapture happens today, uh, then it almost certainly has to be demonic. But uh, it's not inconceivable. And also they kill 200 million. I mean, they kill a third of mankind. So right. it's a large army, probably the number of 200 million. And they're using fire, smoke, and brimstone, which is one of the reasons Fruchtenbaum says that would be demonic as well, that type of battle. Yeah, we see several parallel passages with the smoke and brimstone that clearly are uh, unambiguously demonic. So, well, Bill, thank you uh, so much. I can't wait to see you, uh, I guess, Thursday. Tomorrow we'll we'll be uh, together there in um, in Norman, Oklahoma, for the uh, Imminent Return Prophecy Summit. Again, folks, I encourage you to do two things. I want you to go to notbyworks.org, click on the conference banner that talks about this conference, and sign up for the live stream. Uh, you don't want to miss these uh, speakers, Bill Salas, Billy Crone, Brandon Holdhouse, Mark Hitchcock, Tom Hughes, Bill Koenig, L.A. Marzulli. I mean, this is a who's who. Uh, I'll be speaking twice. Uh, and so definitely sign up for that. And then uh, the second thing is go to propsydepot.com, get this book, read, read it carefully, read through the systematic uh, arguments that uh, Bill Salas makes. And as always, we want to, you know, do the research, come to our own conclusion. But I tell you what, um, I, I wouldn't, I would not uh, bet against Bill's uh, conclusions. <laughs> you know what I mean, Bill? I mean, uh, you are, you're such a, a great uh, scholar, but mo- more than that, you're a man of grace. And I appreciate that. So uh, can we have you back on again sometime? Absolutely. JB, it was wonderful to be with you again. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, uh, uh, for the rest of you, remember uh, to check out notbyworks.org. We got the new online store with a bunch of free resources. As we were talking, Bill and I, I thought of another resource I want to put up there, and that's some of my research on Olivet Discourse. Uh, Bill, you'll be fascinated by this. Uh, you know, I did a study on, I think it was called, and this was published in uh, a journal, Journal of Ministry and Theology, on a history of dispensational thought on the Olivet Discourse. And it really is interesting to trace the different views of, of scholars through the years based on what's happening in the world around us. And so pre-1948, a lot of people took some of the segments of the Olivet Discourse one way. After Israel became a nation again, it sort of awakened people to, oh, wait, maybe this means this. So it's mm-hmm. uh, you always want to interpret Scripture uh, contextually, historically, grammatically, but it all happens in a context, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So. So thank you, folks, for joining us. Uh, again, sign up for the Premier content. We've got our invitation only for Premier members uh, Zoom session, where I'll take your questions, give you an update on the conference this weekend. That's happening next week, so you've got several days left to check it out at the online store. Of course, plenty of free resources. All of our messages and podcasts and Sunday messages from Plum Creek Chapel are always going to be available to the general public. But uh, some of you might find the premier content, uh, the premier uh, subscription, something that really uh, attracts your attention. So God bless you, everyone. Thanks, Bill. We'll see you uh, uh, in uh, just a day or so up there in uh, Oklahoma.